You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Welcome to History Respond. My name is John Harney. Today we're discussing Wolfenstein II, The New Colossus, machine game's follow-up to the 2014 game Wolfenstein New Order. Like that previous game, The New Colossus is set in a 1960s world under the heel of a victorious Nazi party. But whereas the previous game was set in Europe and exposed the player to a realisation of Speer's vision in post-1945 Nazi Berlin and concentration camps fueling an ongoing holocaust, machine games brings us back to the United States for the sequel. We learn more about protagonist B.J. Blaskowitz, and the game directly engages with some very interesting questions about this fictional post-war defeated United States. How would the Nazis rule and how would Americans react? How does collaboration with a white supremacist hierarchy reinforce existing issues in American politics and culture in the 20th century? Here to talk us through some of the questions is a repeat offender. Robert Green II of the University of South Carolina has graciously agreed to join us once again. Robert previously guested on our episode discussing Bioshock. Robert, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me back. I'm uh, certainly grateful to be back on once again. It's great to have you back. It really is. It's, it's, it's really a thrill. And it's also a thrill. I'm also very happy to say we are joined today by History Respond creator Bob Whitaker. Bob, welcome to you. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. I want to go ahead and start, if that's okay, and kind of jump straight in and get into this notion of, of alternate history. And Robert, I was hoping you could help us out with a little bit of context, perhaps, or even just your own reactions and thoughts. The game has specific representations of alternatives to what might be considered or has traditionally been presented as you know, norms in American politics. So we have Grace, who's a character who's heavily shaped by a kind of a popular memory or a popular vision of black power. And Horton Boone, who I suppose, for lack of a better word, is kind of a Cajun communist, I guess, is kind of his <laughs> representation of the game. Um, Robert, how do you think that meshes with the historical reality of black power in American discourse? And I ask that because I myself kind of had this initial reaction that, well, if the United States is under Nazi power since 1945, I don't know that the same historical conditions are in place that create the same kind of, you know, visual language or political language of black power. But then maybe am I perhaps guilty of ignoring the deeper roots of American black power? Like, what did you think of those representations in the game? I first watched footage from the game, in particular the cutscenes involving Grace and her very look and image in the game, I initially had the same reaction you did, which is it's really difficult to conceptualize of a black power movement as we know it existing in this world. With that said, though, it is worth noting that within the realm of what's called black power studies, um, the historical mm -hmm. underpinnings of black power have been understood to be a longer trend of black nationalism. Um, so, for example, historians like Pennell Joseph, um, Ashley Farmer, among others, they've done a great job in the last 10 to 15 years of showing how black power doesn't just arise in the mid-1960s, but in fact, a lot of it owes um, a great deal of its history and lineage to earlier black nationalist movements. Um, to give you a quick example of this, in our timeline in 1961, 
Um, Harold Cruz, the the African American writer and polemicist, who's best known for the book *Crisis of the Negro Intellectual*. Um, in 1961, he wrote a couple of essays about this idea of revolutionary nationalism among African Americans. And in those essays, what he basically argues is that black nationalism was making a comeback. And this was 1961. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he, he and others are saying that in places like New York City, Chicago, Detroit, on the West Coast as well, you have a black nationalism that's informed by people like Malcolm X, the Nation of Islam, informed by a wide range of other sources like the lineage of Marcus Garvey in the 1920s, for instance. You have all these different intellectual currents creating the conditions for new black nationalism. And in the early 60s, folks in places like New York were already beginning to take note of this and contrasted with what you saw in the South with the civil rights movement. And so to, to answer your question, there were already conditions in the U.S. before 1966-67 when we traditionally date the start of black power to indicate the rise of a black, the return of a black nationalism. And throughout African-American history, there's always been a strain of some sort of black nationalism. It's just taken different forms and had different goals and objectives. Obviously, if Nazi Germany conquered the United States, you'd have a black nationalism that was still even far more different from what we're used to. Right. I mean, that for me, because that's interesting about the game, I think, and that the game obviously is an alternate history. So anachronisms are, you know, obviously part of it. But you get into this interesting question, I suppose, of what it means. The game, it seems to me, is striving for this kind of this language of revolution, as it were. Um, and it kind of it kind of got me thinking to the extent to which, you know, you look at you know, the famous Beyonce performance, which is fairly recent, a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, even now with with um, advertising and promotional work for uh, Black Panther, the film, the new Marvel movie directed by Ryan Coogler, the actor Michael B. Jordan was on the cover of British GQ as a Black Panther, which is kind of meant as a pun, you know, as in dressed up, extremely stylish version of, you know, the, the classic Black Panther look and everything else. I mean, it's kind of intriguing to the extent to which it's, if you want to present this language revolution, you go to black power. Exactly. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So like a what I guess it's kind of a form versus anachronism kind of contrast. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. And now that you mention it, I mean, the character of Brace, I think, has a lot of visual cues to that Beyonce performance in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Um, but you're right. It's in a lot of ways, Grace as a character and even her mannerisms, her speech, they're, they're patterned after 60s and 70s ideas of black radicalism, of black power members, and also black exploitation films, too. Um, but I think going beyond what's on the surface, actually getting to what she's talking about, and also getting to what Horton Boone's talking about, there are some real currents from American history that you're, you're seeing in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think we'll get on to Boone in just a second because he's a fascinating character. But Bob, I know something that you brought up before in podcasts, for example, there's a scene in the in the game where you're walking down the main street of Roswell and there's these these clan members in full clan regalia. Um, I know that's something that has kind of bothered you and you've talked a bit <laughs> about representation in New Orleans in the game. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, I, well, I don't allow you to explain why it bothers you beyond 
the entirely obvious reasons that would bother anybody. Yeah. Um, like, what, what do you think of that? What do you think of this anachronism versus kind of revolutionary message idea that's kind of going on in the game? Well, I think, you know, coming off the heels of, you know, covering Mafia 3 and educating myself on uh, the issues related to civil rights in places uh, like New Orleans, where you don't typically think of a civil rights movement. You know, one of the things that came up in Mafia 3 and the history behind that is the fact that the Klan in that area didn't need to wear the hoods, right? Didn't need to dress up, right? They were out in plain sight. And in many cases, the work that would otherwise belong to the Klan was being done by the police, was being done by the state authority. So I almost think, you know, obviously it makes sense in terms of a, uh, um, you know, an exploitation piece like Wolfenstein that you would have the kind of these uh, hallmarks of American racism, in particular, the Klan's hoods. But at the same time, you know, I would say it almost blunts the the true history, which is even more sinister, that in many cases there was no need for the Klan because the police, the, uh, uh, the you know, the people uniformed uh, by the state were perpetrating uh, this racism, were mm-hmm. perpetrating this segregation. Now, one of the things that bothered me as well, going back to the character of Grace and the kind of insistence on black power rising in this anachronistic way uh, was the fact that so much of the civil rights movement in the United States and then also particularly the black power movement was relying a lot on the rhetoric and the work that had been done by the uh, independence movements in Africa mm-hmm. uh, mm. and yeah. uh, in the Caribbean during uh, the 1950s and the 1960s. So I was I was wondering, Robert, I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about this kind of, uh, you know, go-between between the American civil rights movement and the kind of wider world of uh, Pan-Africanism? No, that's a great point. Um, and that's something I actually thought about reviewing the game, reviewing that that subplot to the game. Um, now, going back to the 1950s, in, in many ways, the civil rights movement really owed its legitimacy within the United States to three outside actors, I would argue. First, of course, is the Pan-African tradition, the fact that in the 1950s, just as you had the civil rights movement taking off in the United States, you have the colonization movement taking off in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And so you have the rise of new nations like Ghana, Nigeria, and so on and so forth. Um, as a matter of fact, a good story that symbolizes this is that in 1957, at Ghana's Independence Day celebration, both Martin Luther King Jr., who was at this point known primarily for the Montgomery bus boycott, and Vice President Richard Nixon are both at that particular independence celebration. Mm-hmm. And there's this really funny story where Vice President Nixon is talking to people he assumes are Ghanaian um, citizens. He says, how does it feel to be free and independent? And they respond, well, we wouldn't know we're from Alabama. Um, he wasn't aware there was a, a black American expatriate community in Ghana mm. at that time. Huh. Um, but but to your, your point, uh, one of the actors, of course, is decolonization and the fact that the United States is locked in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So they're having to prove to newly free nations that the United States is, in fact, living up to its creed of freedom and justice for everyone. Um, this is this is involved in the civil rights movement. It's involved in the way in which black diplomats from Africa are treated in the American South, which becomes a headache for the State Department. So these kinds of things are really important. Um, in addition to the Pan-Africanism, um, Martin Luther King and the civil disobedience adherents are looking, of course, to India, um, mm-hmm. inspiration from Gandhi, and the, the very presence of the Soviet Union 
forces the United States to deal with these issues because really from the 1920s on, the Soviets are often using in their anti-U.S. Um, rhetoric across the world the fact that Jim Crow exists in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that mm-hmm. saying that Soviet ambassadors used to have, which is, and you lynch Negroes in the South. Whenever mm-hmm. the U.S. would criticize right. the Soviets, they'd respond with that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, again, with this game, I, I think what Dr. Whitaker is getting at is really important, which is if you don't have those elements in place, if you have a world that is not only dominated but thoroughly ruled by Nazis and Nazism, then the inspirations and the support systems for civil rights movement or any sort of black nationalist movement will be very different. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think in, in Wolfenstein, they're trying to deal with that in some ways, in some forms or fashion, but they inevitably, in most alternate histories, you fall back on what you know from the real world. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened here. I think that's an excellent point. You know, in um, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, you know, horrifically, you have these characters kind of flirting around what's happening in Africa. You know, like Africa, the content of Africa is referred to in these kind of hushed tones by certain characters. And what Dick is doing is just basically just implying, letting your imagination run. What would the Nazis do if they really controlled large parts of the world? You know, Um, but one of the things I like about New Colossus is, you know, the clear vision of what they're trying to do artistically and how they want to incorporate politics. And one way in which they do that is they really bring Blaskowitz's father into this in an interesting way. And, you know, I was listening to the good people at Giant Bomb recently on a podcast. I'm always weeks behind on their podcast and they're, they're you know, they're deliberating their game of the year and they're discussing moments in this game. And they all commented on, you know, the father turns his Jewish wife in and basically turns his, you know, his son, his enemy of the state's son in for just a farm upstate. Um, and, you know, these guys, the, the giant bomb guys were commenting on what a what a small price to sell your family on for. And and I, I think that's a good point. But also, I, I thought the game did a nice job of really kind of showing this kind of long term sense of BJ's father sees himself as the emasculated white man. And for him, the Nazi takeover is almost, you know, um, like, this is a great thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a yeah. godsend, right? It's, it's an enfranchisement, right, for him, where he... He feels that, you know, I'm being held down by um, by the non-white man and finally I'm being other white men are saving me from this. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, reminds me so much of the um, kind of uh, the written narratives coming out of empire, coming out of decolonization about the role of collaboration and the mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. uh, the collaboration mindset. Uh, you know, if you're coming at it from a European mindset, you would talk about uh, the Vichy syndrome, right? This idea that, uh, right. you know, there were oppressed people, there were people who fought the regime, but there was also those who uh, took the uh, advent of Nazism and the Nazi state, uh, took it as an advantage, right? Used it to right. uh, increase their own personal platform. Um, and the same can be said of uh, various areas of the colonial world uh, during the 19th and uh, early 20th centuries. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the game... It it plays fast and loose, you know, with these kind of historical notions. But I I really like the inclusion of that father character and this idea that uh, somebody's willing to sell out their own uh, family mm-hmm. members. And this is something that you see again, not just in uh, you know European colonial empires, uh, not just in this game, but then also within Nazi history more generally. Um, you know, for instance. Uh, there's a lot written on the role of the, the Gestapo, the Nazi secret police, and rounding up political subversives and finding and discovering uh, 
uh, Jews and hiding. And the thing is, is that the Gestapo, even though they seem to be omnipresent, they seem to be everywhere, they were only ever about 30 or 40,000 strong, right? They only had about 30 or 40,000 members uh, in the Gestapo at any one time. And so having such a small group, how were they able to round up all of these subversives? How were they able to round up all of these victims of the Holocaust? Well, they did it through uh, informants, right? Everyday people mm -hmm. taking it upon themselves to fulfill the wishes or the perceived wishes of the state. And that included, uh, you know, family members ratting each other out, right? right? And that, <laughs> that is part and parcel of imperialism. That is part and parcel of colonialism. And, and of course, then it gets translated later into the classic totalitarian nightmare as well, right? The Orwellian idea yeah. um, and, and the Stasi in East Germany and everything else. Robert, obviously, you know, we know that this um, machine games, you know, they're kind of swinging for the fences, as it were. And so we're certainly not here to kind of, you know, nitpick at them. And, and you know, uh, <laughs> they, they, they know they know they, they know they're they're going big, as it were. But what do you think of this notion of kind of a, a pre-civil rights uh, you know, pre-1964 American intellectual landscape. I mean, how fertile is it for this kind of like this father character, like the guy who would greet such an otherwise horrifying reality of like Nazi overlordship as almost a godsend uh, because it allows him, it, because it raises up his race. I mean, wh how can we how can we square the circle a little bit as historians to try and contextualize that idea? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think there are two ways to think about this. Um, first, we should remember that before... The United States entered World War II, you did have thousands of Americans who were self-described Nazis in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, right, right. But you also have this larger undercurrent of American society that, again, has elements of anti-Semitism and racism and, and xenophobia and sexism to it that's much closer to the mainstream. I mean, I think one of the intriguing things about the Nazis conquering America scenario um, is that if the Nazis were to actually do that, and we, we take Wolfenstein's storyline seriously, one of the first things they're going to have to do is to essentially destroy the American Academy. Because if you think about the period from roughly the 1930s through the 1960s in, in our timeline, the real world, so to speak, you had an evolution on, on thinking about race in the Academy that was taking place. It was, it was sparked by anthropologists, it was sparked by historians, it was sparked by a wide range of social scientists, uh, most notably with books like Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma. Um, you have these people who are really beginning to rethink race and take it from African Americans are, are subservient and are lesser than white Americans because of the biological reasons to saying, well, actually, no, there's no biological basis for racism. Um, this is this is a socially constructed idea that starts mm -hmm. in the academy and really spreads out into, into society. And again, World War II itself plays a big role in this. Again, the United States defeating Nazi Germany in 1945 and the horrors of the Holocaust being shown to the world around that same time, it forced a lot of people to rethink ideas about racism that they had as Americans. Um, again, to, to your point about the civil rights movement, owing a lot to pan-Africanism and the colonization, another big thing the civil rights movement owed was owed to was memory of World War II. And the, the idea of defeating a, an enemy like Nazi Germany was based on racism. Um, during the war itself, 
even though at home in the United States there are many Americans who did not want to think of the war as a war to destroy racism. Again, you had thousands of, of Southern whites who were saying, we're actually fighting this war to, to preserve states' rights, for example. Um, you had other people, African-Americans most notably, and liberal white Americans saying, this is our chance to finally become a truly anti-racist country. Um, you've got propaganda films like Frank Capra's Negro at War, where they're showing African-Americans in a positive light, fighting and dying for the United States. So if the Nazis are going to conquer the U.S. in Wolfenstein, in the Wolfenstein series, and install their own order, they will find allies on the ground who disagree with all of this, who are not fans of, of the popular front or liberalism or New Deal, who want to take things to what they thought they used to be like. And so I think mm -hmm. Blaskowitz's father, and that whole story I think is really intriguing because it's foreshadowing the kind of collaboration you see later on in the game. Yeah, indeed. And if it's okay, I'd like love to swing back around to Horton Boone, if we might, to come back to this notion. Because when I, when I think of, you know, this kind of, when I say swinging for the fences, like I, I really think this is a fascinating game statistically. And there's this, you know, the scene in the game where an increasingly drunken BJ Blaskowitz is arguing, screaming, yelling really at uh, Boone Horton as they debate kind of, uh, you know, the good guys went over to fight in Germany and the commies stayed at home. There's this whole kind of, you yeah. know, this is kind of the row. <laughs> but, you know, but Horton exists, and not just him, but the people around him as well. But basically all the New Orleans characters exist as this kind of almost like socialist alternative, rejected alternative. I think the game is very obviously playing with our early 21st century American assumptions of communism and socialism, where, for example... President Obama was regularly labeled a socialist. It's mm. just kind of a mm -hmm. kind of a blanket insult more than anything else, right? Um, he wasn't much of a socialist to this Western <laughs> European, but, uh, you know, depends who you talk to. It's all um, about perspective. It's all about perspective, indeed. Uh, but Robert, you're you're certainly the expert here in terms of you know American intellectual debate and discussion. What do you think of the of what game the game is doing here with kind of this concept of American socialism? And yet again, as historians, how do we? What do we know about American socialism? What what kind of connections are interesting to us here? I, I have to be honest here. As a Southerner and as a historian, Horton Boone is my favorite character in the entire game. Because, <laughs> because I don't know if the if the game producers read a lot of civil rights history or not, but Horton Boone actually, in some ways, that whole sequence where he's debating with Blaskowitz about fighting Nazi Germany, as I watched that, I thought to myself, if I wanted to actually teach what's called the long civil rights movement, I would actually use that argument. Because there are huh. historians for the last 15 years, so back up for a second, Jacqueline Dowd Hall wrote an essay around 2005 um, talking about what's referred to as the long civil rights movement. And it's this argument, this thesis among American historians that the civil rights movement does not begin with um, the Montgomery bus boycott. It doesn't begin with the Brown v. Board decision. It actually begins in the 1930s with things like the creation of the New Deal, the rise of the popular front organizations involving communists, socialists, liberals, and other racial progressives, so on and so forth. And so Horton Boone, while he's, he's a caricature, there were people actually like him in the South. There weren't many. I want to stress that there weren't that many. Um, but there were people in the South who, a few, who were who were leftists, who were dedicated to pushing what he refers to as a civil rights movement. And the timeline that he actually describes is also pretty funny because 
again, the Second World War is a watershed for civil rights activism. You start having early versions of people sitting on buses and refusing to get up um, because of their race. You have that happening during World War II. You have protests against racism during the war. And so Boone's actually right that there was an attempt at a civil rights movement even in the 1930s and 40s in the South. It wasn't as large or as successful as the one in the 50s or 60s, but you did have communists in the South who were doing that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think of, of books like Robin Kelly's Hammer and Ho, which is about the Communist Party in Alabama during the Great Depression. And for those of you listening, that you heard right. There was a communist movement <laughs> in Alabama, a very small one, but it was there in the 1930s. Um, so in a sense, the game, and this might blow people's minds, when it's talking about civil rights, it's actually reflecting the more recent historiography among American historians of saying the civil rights movement as we think of it now doesn't begin with Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. It actually begins about a generation before that. And those folks at the beginning included socialists and communists. This this fact that the left um, in America saw civil rights as not only the right thing to do, but also as a way to get African-Americans on board with a larger leftist project. It's fascinating. You know, Bob, if I can come back to you again and we can turn to colonialism or I and I hope this is I hope this is a smooth transition as it is in my mind. You know, in the show notes I kinda talked about maybe we could talk about um colonialism in America and the sense to which we're inverting kind of a classic, at least a post nineteen forty five vision of the United States, or we're inverting the idea that rather than being a colonizer, the United States is colonized. But as we're having this conversation, I don't know how much of that is an inversion versus a realignment and almost this kind of sense of if America is divided into those who were, you know, as you say, the language of colonization is so heavily present in civil rights discourse already. Um, to what, you know, to what extent is this game participating in that conversation more? So, like, is this an inversion, like a classic inversion? Now Americans have to be the ones to rise up, or is it just simply a case of, and they're accenting or giving more weight to something that's already there? I think they're giving more weight to something that's already there. I don't think Americans in general think of themselves as participating in colonialism. Right. Despite the fact that uh, you have, you know, from the late 19th century, you have the uh, Spanish-American War, uh, you have the American operations in Latin America, invasions of various uh, countries, uh, you know, going through to the Cold War era. Uh, I don't think that most Americans think of them, their country in that way, uh, in kind of popular consciousness. So I think in the way, you know, this game and its use of that kind of colonial narrative, it fits in with kind of an older idea of American colonialism that's based on America being oppressed and then overthrowing uh, a tyrannical power. So I think Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, uh, it's tough to kind of criticize the game on that basis because it's such a nice narrative, right, Right. to kind of harken back to the 18th century. Um, And and it's also hard to criticize it for not, you know, kind of uh, alighting to the fact that America was also uh, a colonizing nation. So it's almost too much to expect from this type of game. Yeah. They're already doing too much. I mean, you know, as, as Robert was saying, you know, there is a uh, grace, the black exploitation character, and it's in the midst of this mm-hmm. huge Nazi exploitation uh, production. So right. it's like they're already, <laughs> right. they're already layering on so many themes that adding that extra one, I think it would just be too much. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think, I think they still end up going a bit too much, but it's kind of, 
it's kind of in line with their whole approach, actually. I think too much was kind of the yeah. way the game worked. But I agree. I mean, the game, you know, I forgot to give a spoiler alert at the start. I should make sure to put that in later. <laughs> the game ends with this truly awful cover of we're not going to take it, you know. Um, but just this kind of sense of of rising up. And it gets into the interesting language of well, what should a video game be doing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're giving you the dual-wielding guns. BJ is kind of a super a superman almost, Although we get into Nietzsche, maybe get into weird territory. Um, you know how how do you you know how do you get into this stuff without deflating it? Um, the other thing, and the, you know, a lot of the a lot of the coverage for the game ahead of its release got me very excited. In the end, there wasn't as much of this in the game as I thought there might be, but there is quite a bit about kind of nineteen sixties era television. So one of the key points late in the game, and it's kind of alluded to and foreshadowed a lot throughout the game, is basically kind of a, a, a 1960s Nazi America version of Johnny Carson Tonight Show <laughs> type stuff, you know, this kind of evolution. And, and again, going back to the anachronisms where a post 45 Nazi United States, it still has black power, but it also still will have this kind of TV popular culture evolution. I don't know if they'll do the sexual revolution, in the third game that could get kind of crazy, but uh, this popular culture revolution, um, Bob, I'll stick with you for a minute if you don't mind. Sure. Like, so what do you think of that? What do you think of this kind of this attempt to integrate this, this meta kind of critique of of culture and the way the game ends so graphically in front of cameras. Uh, I, I, I really think there was something intentional happening there. And those early trailers made all kinds of references. I, I know. I, I stuff, feel like you know. and I were just texting about Adorno. And I feel like this yeah, just fits right. right into that conversation. <laughs> um, I just got done. Uh, this is the end of the winter quarter here at Louisiana Tech. And I just got finished teaching both 20th century European history, and then a course on Nazi Germany. So I've been thinking a lot about propaganda uh, and state (laughs) propaganda during the 20th century. And I think that it absolutely makes sense to have uh, Germany uh, within this alternate uh, history setting uh, to be kind of uh, in the forefront of that TV and cultural uh, media revolution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the Germans, uh, Goebbels in particular, they were already at the forefront of that revolution during the radio era, right? It was Goebbels right. who uh, actually helped to create state-sponsored radio production so that every household in Germany would have access to uh, Goebbels himself, right, to Nazi propaganda. Right. And, you know, it's important right. to realize that the importance of that propaganda uh, to building up Hitler's power, right? Because if you go back and you look at, uh, you know, Hitler's political career, and many biographers have done this, he was really kind of a, a mediocre leader. But because mm-hmm. of the very talented people around him, the very talented uh, PR people, Goebbels in particular, uh, they were able to develop this personality cult using sophisticated Mm -hmm. uh, PR campaigns. And in a way, they were able to create Hitler into a figurehead. And so it didn't so much matter what Hitler himself said or believed or did. The figurehead was what mattered. And so that allowed Mm -hmm. people to, uh, you know, kind of revere Hitler despite the atrocities uh, committed by his regime. And but then also to uh, you know, kind of continue on the work that they suppose that he wants them to continue, right? So mm-hmm. the war against the Jews, the war against other state enemies, the war against the Bolsheviks, uh, the destruction of the Versailles Treaty, the the war, you know, uh, for Lebensraum uh, in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So I think it absolutely makes sense, you know, when you take the long legacy of Nazi propaganda, uh, going from Goebbels uh, to Leni Riefenstahl, uh, and thinking mm-hmm. about how that would translate to the television era, I thought that that kind of alternate history was dead on. 
Right. And and if you look at, for example, representation of Hitler in the game, mm-hmm. where he's this kind of aging, pathetic, um, ultra auteur who must be recognized kind of thing. <laughs> As obviously, it's tongue in cheek, but it's kind of it's not, you know, you could see it, you know, that he turned to he turned to becoming the world's greatest artist, having completed his military vision. <laughs> you know, I, you know, again, it's 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 for chuckles, but it's but I think you're, you're spot on, Bob. Uh, Robert, uh, coming back then, I mean, I guess I'm interested. How do you feel? I mean, would this even count? as like um, a distortion of kind of what happens like in a post-war kind of popular culture landscape? Like what, what did you think again of this propaganda and also this role of media, of television in particular, of, of celebrity actually, which is something the Nazis are using very heavily in this fictional universe? You know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we, we do know that in the late 1930s and early 40s, the Germans like the United States and other countries were already beginning to experiment with television. Um, so they were mm-hmm. starting to kind of use it a little bit, you know, of course, the war derailed that ultimately for them. But it makes sense that if they conquer the United States, they're going to have to find some way to keep most Americans in line. Um, because, it, you know, it, like looking at the game Wolfenstein itself, looking at how the Germans treat the Americans, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that even if you have a large minority of Americans who are great, who are happy to have the Nazis in the U.S., who are happy to roll back any sort of progress for African-Americans, for Jewish Americans, et cetera, you still need something else to, to keep them in line, to keep them supporting the Nazi regime in Berlin. And so I think the use of television here makes perfect sense in that regard, because folks are going to really eat up this new entertainment medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And again, this notion, I suppose, of assault on the, the senses, as it were, going back to Riffenstahl and all that kind of stuff and and, and, and the whole Fuhrer idea. One thing I do want to uh, keep in mind, talking about the Nazis and, and African-American history, is that we should remember that in Germany itself, the Nazis promulgated this very brutal view of Africans. I mean, one of the things Hitler and the Nazis used in the 1920s when they're first running for seats in the Reichstag, is an argument against the use of Senegalese troops in the Ruhr Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, they're saying mm-hmm. these Africans being used, this is barbaric, it's bad that the French occupying German territory, but it's worse than doing it with, with black soldiers. And then, hmm. to make the irony of ironies, during the war itself, the Nazis, when they were fighting against black soldiers, they would target them with propaganda saying, while you're fighting for the United States and Europe, back home there are race riots, um, African-Americans aren't getting jobs in defense industries. The Nazis are basically using the rhetoric of civil rights to try to dampen black morale in the front lines. And so I think Wolfenstein really offers us an opportunity to think deeper about the relationship between African-Americans on the one hand and how they view Nazi ideology and vice versa, how the Nazis viewed African-Americans at the same time. Mm. Indeed. You know, it's interesting now that you say it, because I think one of the things, of course, the history respond that we're continually interested in is the extent to which games like this are either feeding into existing popular narratives, reinforcing them or even reconsidering them. You know, this, this is a game that obviously has a very large audience and has, you know, has an impact that you know, rightly or wrongly, a lot of the books that we're mentioning in this conversation maybe don't have, at least, you know, or at least maybe it's reaching constituencies, the books don't reach and everything else. I mean, I'm personally interested in how this game, 
maybe isn't even challenging realities of, of Nazi discourse that we professionals are used to, but it certainly kind of punctures or at least addresses kind of popular conceptions. A lot of the marketing mm-hmm. for the game, mm-hmm. the, you know, go punch a Nazi stuff, which is reflecting recent recent worrying trends in American politics, you know, really, you know, really kind of interested me. And it was actually kind of fortuitous, I think, because in fairness, the development cycle of the game, they didn't suddenly have this idea after Charlottesville, for example, like they're working on the game for months and months and months at that point. Um, you know, Bob, obviously you and I work on this quite a bit. Like, so what, what do you think of how New Colossus is kind of engaging with and I, I don't say this in a derogatory way, but kind of like a popular or almost like surface level conception or or representation of that word Nazi, of this idea of what that's supposed to stand for. Yeah, I mean, I think that I I think this game improves on that idea, that theme, uh, even upon the first Wolfenstein. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. whenever you're doing a piece of Nazi exploitation, you know, there's always the danger of disassociating those kind of Nazi images, those propaganda elements from their original intent and from their original moral implications. Uh, you know, and this is a problem now with neo-Nazi movements, with uh, right-wing movements uh, in the States in particular, where it seems like these images uh, are transgressive, so it makes them cool, right? And you mm-hmm. kind of forget... Right. The, you exactly. know how these images what they originally meant what they were originally used for but i think this game uh despite being a piece of nazi exploitation which you know kind of mm-hmm. almost eroticizes power and submission um it does do a good job of uh, giving those uh, propaganda elements given that symbology but then also making it a, a text for humor and ridicule right also using mm-hmm. it as a way to attack these ideas right, uh, to making yeah. Nazis look as though they are uh, worthy targets, right? These are people right. you don't want to associate with. This is uh, these images, this uh, fewer cult that is promoted in the game. These are things that are evil and should be destroyed. Uh, so I think it is always risky to to try uh, anything related to the Nazis, any kind <laughs> of Nazi exploitation. But I think this game, it hits the right chord, and I think it does it even better uh, than the new order, than their than their original right. uh, uh, their original attempt. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to you know get over the top or anything, but I I think this game is a big step forward for the medium in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. We brought up exploitation a lot today, um, in kind of Nazi exploitation. That's great. Did you coin that, Bob? No, Can we give no, you credit that, for that. That's, uh, a, that's a common phrase. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it. Ah, uh, I didn't realize. Yeah. So. Um, but I, I think it's a big step forward that games can do these kind of things now, can can take chances that I don't know it was possible to do even maybe five years ago, certainly not 10 years ago, storytelling-wise. That the ga- I think the game makes its expressions of over-the-top part of the, the method. And so I think it's easier, for example, to talk. This is a game where the main protagonist is badly injured for the first half of the game and then is literally grafted onto a Nazi-designed piece of technology, Ubermensch-type thing, the second half of the game. And whatever their intent, they're they're leaving the door wide open for, for people to come in and comment on that and analyze it and take it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's great. I mean, Ro- Robert is obviously is an historian who, you know, you're interested in video games, you know, you're, you're, you're not, um, you're currently busy at work on your dissertation. Um, but <laughs> what, what do you think about that, about this kind of conversation Bob and I are embarking on here about, about, about the form of the game, you know, the exploitation nature, like what, what are your reactions to that? 
I think you guys are absolutely right. And, you know, when, when I was actually watching gameplay footage and watching especially the cutscenes, what really struck me was some of the quieter moments. Like when, when Blaskowitz is a kid and he's interacting with a black girl, I thought that was actually some of the best parts of the mm. game in terms of storytelling. Because the game developers were saying in a way that I think even a lot of historians kind of miss is that racism on the ground in the 20th century in the United States is not just a question of segregation or what bathrooms you can use or what restaurants you can use, that kind of thing. There's still interaction between blacks and whites on the ground. And the tragedy of that all, as you see in the game, is that it's so fraught with danger and peril because mm-hmm. of the society they live in. And yet, at the same time, Blaskowitz has this, this girl as a friend of his because they have mutual interest and just get along. Um, so I, right. I think you're right. Like the, the video games as a storytelling medium are becoming more and more sophisticated. I think it's because, again, we have a generation of game developers who grew up playing video games and they probably all ask the same questions we did, which is, you know, how can we make these games better? And how can we allow them to tell better, richer stories? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think so. And I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. You know, Robert, thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, we, uh, we hope to have you maybe back another time. Bob, it's great to, to, it's always fun to talk to you about video games. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. <laughs> thank you for listening to the History Respawn podcast. Please consider giving us a review on iTunes. It really helps get the show out to newer and wider audiences. If you want to support our work, do consider visiting patreon.com slash historyrespawned and making a contribution of your choice. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.